scriptures to turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, once again. Luke, chapter 9. I'm going to read from verse 23. Things are going to be a little different than what I intended tonight, but more about that in just a moment. But we'll read from verse 23. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world Lose himself or be cast away. For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed, when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. Amen. We'll end our reading there at verse 27. Let's pray again. Look to the Lord for His help. You all need the help of the Spirit just as I do. So let us bow our heads and humble ourselves before God for that life-changing ministry when the Spirit comes and takes the Word, makes it the very Word of God to our souls. Lord, we're thankful that Thy Word is a living Word. And as we have been singing, we are so grateful to be under thy, thy care as our shepherd, to know that even when our enemies may laugh amidst our tears, that we need not worry, that the Lord is on our side. We will not fear what man will do unto us. And in this day in which we live, full of uncertainty, where there certainly are signs of a tremendous rising influences of, of hatred and animosity toward Jesus Christ, as we stand in the midst of it, as we live amidst it, as we raise our children amidst it, as we educate, for some, those that are the next generation amidst it, as we work amidst it, as we are in our neighborhoods amidst it, how we pray that we would truly know Thee. Make Thy Word live in our hearts. Pour out the Holy Ghost upon us tonight. Take this from being a sermon to a message from God, a word appropriate for the occasion. And may hearts be strengthened in the truth and souls converted to Christ. We pray, giving thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. It may startle you to know that there are occasions when the preacher gets convicted, and convicted by his own sermons. You might never think about that. You might always think that I'm going after you and trying to make sure that you feel uncomfortable under the weight of God's Word. But there are times in which it is true. I stand here, and I bring the Word of God, and there are parts of it that either in the moment are convicting me, 
Certainly there are times before I'm convicted, but certainly times as well in the moment, as well as after. After having given the word, I have this sense of conviction in terms of my responsibility to bring to you the word of God aright. Well, that happened in recent days, because if you were with us when we dealt with verses 23 through verse 27, I really just passed over verse 27. I didn't say much in the way of any comment on that text. I made one passing remark in relation to it and then went on to close the service. And when I come back to study, thinking that I was getting into the the event that we have afterwards of the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ and began to prepare myself for that passage, I looked again, reading verse 27 and reading the words, but I tell you of a truth. I tell you of a truth. There be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. And I thought, the Lord was drawing attention to this. It wasn't passing over it. It wasn't just a side remark. It was something he wanted them to get. And here I am, expounding his word, and I just pass over it as if it's something we're not to dwell upon. So tonight, we're coming back to this text on its own, because as I thought, well, maybe I can incorporate into a kind of introduction into the (laughs) transfiguration, but the more I looked at it, and the more I sought to wrestle with it, I thought, no, this, this will be better served as a message on its own. We want to love the Word of God, men and women. We want to pay attention and feel the weight of the Word. And when Jesus Christ speaks, obviously we are to listen. But when He is drawing attention to certain truths, the last thing we want to do is to act like it's a side issue or it's unimportant. So, I trust the Lord will bless our meditation on this singular text tonight as we consider seeing the kingdom of God, seeing the kingdom of God. But I tell you of the truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. I want you to note with me, first of all, the period in view. The period in view. What is the time frame that our Lord Jesus Christ is pointing to when He says these words? That's the question. And of course, if you read the commentators, you will realize that they are all over the place, which was maybe part of the reason why I just passed over it. I thought, I don't want to get bogged down in that, and I just, I'll just kind of swiftly move on. But again, we've already dealt with that. That's not the way to handle the Word of God. First of all, is this referring, in part of our consideration of the period in view, is this referring to the second coming of Christ at the end of the age? Now, you may not think that looking at this, but if you read Matthew's account of Matthew chapter 16, verse 28, when he details this, he says, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And the language coming in His kingdom sounds like it might be a reference to way in the future, the final return of Jesus Christ to this earth. And there may be some who take it that way. I don't know for sure in terms of names, but you will realize that there's an obvious problem with that. And the obvious problem, of course, is the fact that the people standing before Christ, the audience that were before Him, He says some of them will not taste of death, which is just language to describe death itself. They will not die until this takes place. So, of course, you have a a scenario a little like John chapter 21, 
when the Lord Jesus turned to Peter and said about John, that if he, if he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. And then went about this saying that that disciple was not going to die until the Lord came back. It just shows you that even the apostles of the Lord can misconstrue uh, things that were said by the Lord. So that's the obvious problem. Of course, then, at least for me anyway, I dismiss that that is what is being referred to, that this is not pointing to the final age, that whatever we make of the language when it says, especially Matthew, till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom, that it can't be that. It doesn't make sense in the context. We ask then, secondly, is it, mis- is it a mistake in prediction similar to the view some have of Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Now, Mark chapter 1, verse 15 refers to uh, the teaching of John the Baptist and then subsequently the Lord Jesus Christ, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, I read an article written and published on a dispensational, uh, dispensationalist seminary website and maybe you're unfamiliar with dispensationalism. If that's the case, I can commend to you the entry that is given by Dr. Cairns in his dictionary, or if you want a more lengthy treatment, uh, one of the two publications that have been put together by our minister in Winston-Salem, Reverend Kimbrough, who has also dealt, dealt extensively with these matters. But if I was to sum up the key distinction between those who call themselves dispensational and those of us who would call ourselves covenant theologians and having a covenantal understanding of the Scriptures in this way, to quote again Dr. Cairns, he says, Covenant theology stresses the unity of the entire body of the redeemed throughout all ages. Dispensationalism, on the other hand, teaches that there have been at least two groups of men with whom God has entered into a relationship, and that these two groups of redeemed men must be viewed as totally distinct that they have nothing to do with each other, and that God has totally different purposes in mind in calling them each out. So, those of us in the Reformed camp view the church as the continuity of the people of God in all ages, Old Testament and New. That there's a very real sense in which you can say that was the church in the Old Testament. There's a continuity of whom the Lord calls on to Himself, and they can be designated as the church. You have this even implied in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, paragraph 2. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, paren, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion. And so implied in that, the visible church is no longer confined to one nation, but it is now universal, you have in that, you have the sense that implied these men understood that the church was actually the church in the Old Testament, that the only difference is the scope. You don't have something which began in Acts chapter 2. So getting back to the article that I read on the seminary website, website, the author says, quote, most dispensationalists believe that when Jesus and John the Baptist proclaimed the kingdom of God is at hand, Mark 1, 15. They were not speaking of God's program for the church, but were saying that the kingdom promised to Abraham and reaffirmed to Israel throughout the Old Testament was being offered now to that generation of Jews. The article then goes on to quote Charles Ryrie from a study Bible, again on the same text, Mark 1, 15, where Ryrie says, The rule of Messiah on earth 
promised in the Old Testament and earnestly longed for by the Jewish people, was near, for the Messiah had come. However, the people had rejected rather than accepted Him, and the fulfillment of the kingdom promises had to be delayed until God's purpose in saving Jews and Gentiles and forming His church was completed. Then Christ will return and set up God's kingdom on this earth. I want you to note those words, those four words, had to be delayed, had to be delayed. That is, because of Jewish rejection, which is prophesied, of course, in passages like Isaiah 53, God had to delay what He intended to do. In other words, Christ had a mistaken intention and had to enact a sort of plan B as He faced the rejection of the Jewish nation. That's generally what is being put forward by them. And so you read a passage like Mark 1.15, you say, is that what's going on? Is that what's happening? Is Christ saying that here is this kingdom coming? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what Christ preached in Matthew 4.17. What was he saying there? He's preaching, you better repent because the kingdom is near. That is to say, the reason to repent is because something is coming that is inevitable. If I am understanding such dispensationalists correctly, how then can it be that Israel's lack of repentance could stop what is to come? In other words, it's almost like a, a kind of, d- d- not a reward for unbelief, but it's like it's not as bad as what it could be. Christ is saying, you better repent, because this is coming, and nothing's going to stop it. And to think that the unbelief of the Jews would prevent, would hinder, would somehow impede the intention of our Lord, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But while that's the case for Mark 1.15, I have to say it's also the case here in Luke 9.27. The Lord Jesus is not mistaken here. When he says, but I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. I thought it important just to point out the fact that should someone say, well, that was the intention, but with the unbelief of the Jews, then there had to be another approach. I say no. That's not how we take this text. Thirdly, we ask, is it a prediction of the coming transfiguration of Christ? The next event, as I've already said, is the transfiguration. Verse 28, it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistering. So you have the transfiguration. And many, and most dispensationalists, I might add, tie in verse 27 into the scene of the transfiguration. They say that Peter, James, and John, before they died, got a glimpse of what Jesus will be like when He returns. And so, whenever He's dealing in verse 27, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God, He's referring to those three, Peter, James, and John. And they are very prominent, very prominent throughout the history of the church, prominent individuals who take it in that fashion. Yet, it seems a stretch to me also for three reasons. One, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God seems like a strange way of saying, three of you will see me in a glorified state about a week from now. 
doesn't really seem to ring with the sense of what the Lord is saying there. To talk about the possibility of death without any obvious reason for them to die, and there only being a week between the events, roughly, it makes you wonder, I mean, is this really the way the Lord would phrase it? Some of you, three of you, will see something of this glory a week from now, but instead of saying that, he says, you'll not taste of death till you've seen the kingdom of God. Secondly, the transfiguration is a vision of the glorified Christ. It's not exactly seeing the kingdom of God come with power, as Mark puts it in Mark 9 verse 1. There may be some correlation with it, but it's not exactly the same. And thirdly, the discussion at the transfiguration is not about the second coming of Christ, but the death of Christ. Verse 31, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. So the discussion between Moses, Elijah, and the Lord Jesus Christ isn't about his return, which if it was about that, if it was pointing forward and saying that this is what you're going to see, you would imagine not only would you have the, 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 veil, the unveiling glory of Jesus Christ, but in addition to that, a discussion about this kingdom that will be set up upon the earth, or whatever the case might be. The fact that he is pointing to his death, and we ought to then see the connection between the glory of Christ and his death, and what's going on or as it may be translated, his exodus, which we'll get to, God willing, in the future. I think that it doesn't really fit with the scene. So fourthly, we ask, is it a prediction of the impact of the death and resurrection of Christ that was first unveiled at Pentecost and ended with the destruction of the Jewish nation and then continued on throughout the ages? Is that what is in view? Well, according to some eminent men, yes. John Gill, for example, the gospel dispensation visibly taking place both among Jews and Gentiles upon the resurrection of Christ and the pouring forth of His Spirit, and when it should come in power both in the conversion of God's elect in great numbers and in the destruction of the Jewish nation for their rejection of the Messiah. So he sees this text as this gospel dispensation visibly taking place, spreading through the world, the destruction of the Jewish nation, and so on. John Wesley also, there are some here who shall live to see the Messiah coming to set up his mediatorial kingdom with great power and glory by the increase of his church and the destruction of the temple, city, and polity of the Jews. Thomas Cook also, the disciples saw their master coming in his kingdom when they were witnesses of his transfiguration, resurrection, and ascension, had the miraculous gifts of the Spirit conferred upon them, and lived to see Jerusalem with the Jewish state destroyed and the gospel propagated through the greater part of the then known world. So you go back to the text and you ask yourself, does that fit? Does it fit? I tell you the truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. It certainly seems to fit in terms of the period, I'm not dealing with something that's just a week away, and we're not dealing with something that's millennia away, but we're dealing with something that rightly could be said, some of you will be around, but not all of you. And you're going to witness something. You're going to witness something that is a, a, an unveiling of the power of the King, Jesus Christ. And I think these men have it right. I think the whole engulfing of 
what was to take place because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, seen in a marvelous fashion on the day of Pentecost, whenever Peter stands up and there's a preaching going on, and multitudes are converted to Jesus Christ, and the ongoing spread of the gospel through the nations, and going on then for 40 years, where you see the nation that had rejected this king crumble, and the empire that tried to resist this king unable to do so. And so you have the spread of his kingdom, the building of his church, the gates of hell will not prevail against. You have all of this being seen, witnessed by some of those that would live to see the mighty working of the Lord. So that's the period in view. We have also then, for our consideration, the people in view, the people in view, some standing here. To whom is Christ addressing this? Well, again, to remind you, in Mark 8, 34, we're told that it's not just the disciples that are here on this occasion, because Mark 8 tells us, and when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also. So there's a crowd here, a crowd of the disciples, a crowd of the people in general, all gathered to hear this, where he brings this charge. Remember, when Matthew begins, verily, in other words, he's, he's drawing attention to it again. And that's what he is here. I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. He is impacting their minds. And as that crowd watch on, the Lord Jesus Christ has in view everyone there that they would hearken to his words and be impacted, savingly impacted by his words. When you read the word that they shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God, the word see has the idea of becoming acquainted with by experience or to perceive. There's a sense in which our Lord is not only saying that they will see something with their eyes, but they will understand what is, being, is taking place. That they will see it, not just see these events, but they will see what is going on in terms of the kingdom of God. And it's spread through the earth. So it's not just enough to bear witness to the events. The people must have spiritual insight. They must be able to perceive what's going on. We realize that the, the cross of Christ and its significance was, was, was hidden from men. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And you will see that what we view as the central act in human history, the most central event in human history, the death and resurrection of the Son of God, was easily cast aside by those who could not see. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll take time to read the entirety of the chapter here. It's hard to break in and fully understand what's going on, but 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. 
For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So, just setting the scene here, he is, he is, he is underlining his method of preaching the gospel. He's not trying to win people with, with high language and lofty wisdom that would, that would startle and attract and convince the world that, that, oh, this is a man of tremendous intellect and wisdom. This is one of the great philosophers of the age. No, he's not. He, he, he deliberately simplifies his language. He deliberately keeps on focus in terms of what the content of his message is. He deliberately preaches Christ and the simplicity of what he is in terms of, of being the Savior of sinners and lifts him up that simply by the power of the Spirit, men would be influenced and see the wisdom of God in giving his Son to redeem sinners from their sin. The wisdom of this world, however, couldn't comprehend it, couldn't see it. If they could, verse 8, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. They could not see it. Then he quotes here from Isaiah 64, verse 4, As it is written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. As I've said to you before, it's not that it's not talking about heaven, but heaven's a very narrow way to interpret this text. Paul's not dealing with heaven. You can see that from the context. He's not thinking of heaven here. He's dealing with the gospel. He's dealing with the wisdom of God in the manifestation of God's Son as the Savior of sinners and its proclamation to men as a way of winning the world onto himself. And so there are certain things that man doesn't understand. Just like the, the princes of this world, they don't get it. They don't see it. They saw the events. Pilate was there. Herod knew it. Many were, under, were, were aware of what was going on, but they couldn't truly comprehend, perceive the events and what was taking place. Verse 10, But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. We see, we understand, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. This is all. This is the blessings of the gospel. This is the Spirit helping you to understand the mysteries of what it is to see Christ and Him crucified and claim Him as your own Redeemer and all the benefits that He mediates to you when you repent and believe. So he continues, verse 14, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judge of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that we may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So you see it. You see that there are things that men in the world can't see that there are events that unfolded even in the death and resurrection of Christ and men couldn't understand what was going on. They failed to perceive what God was doing in those events. But that's not the case for you and me. There are things we see that they don't see. Things we understand, they don't understand. So go back to our text and help. Let, may we see it then in that light. I tell you the truth, there be some standing here which will not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. And there are those that will see this, that the entire world will not see, but they see it. They understand it. 
And so the people then that are in view are those that have had this work. It's not just that they live in this period of time, but they are the people that are regenerate. They are the people that respond. And Christ, as He stands before the crowd, many of which were unbelievers, He is saying to them, if you don't repent, you'll not see it. You won't be able to see it. You might live through the events, but you won't be able to see it. And not truly understand it. They won't see the, the coming of His glory. They won't fully understand the, the unveiling of the glory of the kingdom of God. They won't get it. That brings us thirdly then to consider the prospect in view. The prospect in view. What is the prospect? There will be some standing here which shall not taste of death. They will not die till they see the kingdom of God. What does he mean? In terms of who is in view, as we've dealt with, it is those that are truly regenerate. They will truly see this. They will experience this. It will be real for them. They will discern the mighty advance of Christ's kingdom in their day. They will see it take place. They will discern this. This is a mighty advance of God's kingdom. They would live to understand that Christ is presently reigning. Now, I would love, and I'll maybe just turn in there for a moment and read it to you. Psalm 110. Go to Psalm 110. And it would be a worthy study on some occasion to note the usage of Psalm 110 in the New Testament. But if you have a Bible with references, if you have a margin with references in it, note, note how condensed the references are in your margin. Look how many references are around Psalm 110. This psalm is used repeatedly over and over and over and over again in the New Testament to deal with the age we are presently living in, that from the death and resurrection of Christ and the day of Pentecost, the, the disciples, the apostles saw the unfolding of this psalm in their day. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Roll thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. Now that's a tremendous psalm. And it's a psalm of kingship. It's a psalm of rule and reign, of subduing enemies, of conquering and being the victor over whoever it is that's trying to resist you. So turn for a moment then to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost. The apostles have been waiting. They have been encouraged that they will receive power. They have received encouragement, even that, that the one that they have served and, and volunteered their lives to, 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 
surrender to and live for, they've been told that he is all power. Matthew 28. That he is all power, both in heaven and on earth. And upon that knowledge, you can go. doesn't matter what enemies you face. I have all power. I am with you. But here in Peter's preaching, note from verse, well, well, verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ, or Messiah, to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. We see it. We can see it. We have borne witness to it. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed for this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. There he's quoting Psalm 110. He is, he is, he's just popping it in there, into their mind. He's not quoting the whole psalm, though the whole psalm is significance. He's just throwing in there a familiar passage. He's planning it in there. All you're looking forward to that is spoken of in Psalm 110 about the Messiah, it's occurred. It's right here. It's happening. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And the sense, the emphasis of Peter's language is to say, your king, Israel, has come. And he's not future reigning. He is reigning now. And you killed him. And God rose him from the dead. Evidence of the fact he is. He is the one you've denied. He is the one you've rejected. He is the one that you despised. He is the one who's come to save us. He is Lord. He is Christ. So when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. When they realized they'd rejected their sovereign Messiah, their reigning king, that he is there. It's a sense here. The conviction comes upon them because they realize now that they are under, they, they have they've rejected the one who's reigning. And they can get into their minds what Psalm 110 says. You don't want to be in the receiving, receiving end of the wrath of Messiah spoken of in Psalm 110. You better repent and believe the gospel. And that goes to everyone here tonight. Properly understanding Psalm 110, you don't want to be found among the enemies of Jesus Christ. You don't want to trifle with your soul. You don't want to be found as one who rejects him and thinks you'll get away with it. Because Psalm 110 is showing that Jesus Christ rules now and will mete out judgment upon all his enemies. Oh, he's not impressed that you're simply in church. He calls you to bow the knee. Go to Acts chapter 5. Acts 5. Verse 29. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, 
for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart. Same thing. <laughs> this impact of, of the reign of Christ. He's a prince and a savior. We're his witnesses. In other words, we see it. We see it. We bear testimony to it. We bear testimony to that which Jesus Christ said. There be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. Now it's not confined just to his death. It's not confined just to his resurrection. It's not confined just to the day of Pentecost. That, that is the ushering in. But it is the ongoing seeing of this. And part of it, of course, is in seeing Israel in their rejection and unbelief being crushed by the king they rejected. So as I said to you, on what basis do they go forward is with such confidence? Matthew 28, 18 and following. All power is given unto me. Not will be given. So this is not a future reign I'm looking for. All power is given unto me, both in heaven and on earth. What more power could be granted? So he says, go, my subjects. Go, my loyal witnesses. Go, my preachers of the word. Go, go. Don't fear any man. Go into every nation. Hesitate not for a moment. And know I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. I will use you. I will bless you. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. This is maybe turning a little bit into more of a Bible study than a sermon, but I trust the Lord will bless these thoughts to you. Ephesians 1. What does he pray in verse 18? Praying for the church that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. See, this is the thing. You need to see. You need to see that the kingdom has come. You need to see it. It's not, it's not something happening future. You need to see what you have now. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. This, this isn't the church just, just taught to just hang in there. Just, just hang in there until the Lord comes back. Just, just, just try to do your best. <laughs> That's not what's going on here. This is language of victory. Language of kingship. Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come. Now, if that isn't Christ reigning now, I don't know what language needs to be put before you to convince you that that is the case. He is presently above all principality and power and might and dominion. Every name that is named. Right now, verse 22, and hath put all things under his feet. Yes, he's doing this. Psalm 110. He's putting his enemies under his feet. This is the same language. And gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So the church becomes the vehicle through which the kingdom is advanced. This is what we are to expect today. We are to see this. The first century believers saw 
the beginnings of this. There be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. They will see it. Oh, they will see it. And some of them were martyred before they saw the fall of Jerusalem. They did not see the nation in its collapse. They did not see the destruction of the temple. Though the Lord Jesus had prophesied of it, they didn't see it themselves, but they saw, they saw, they saw the early parts of it. They saw the rising tide of Christ's kingdom over the nations. And it must begin first at Jerusalem. There he must first conquer. There you get in a little microcosm what the kingdom of Christ can do. And he can just destroy a nation, wipe it out. So then the Gentiles are gathered in, encouraged to come. And Paul's able to say of the church at Rome that your faith is known throughout the whole world. Not that every single person living had heard, but there was a sense that everywhere you go, there there are these Christians and, and they know about the church in Rome and they know about the church across Europe and in Jerusalem and so on. These things are not hidden. This kingdom's advancing. It is growing. It's expanding. It's doing marvelous things. And you just have to stop and, and, and consider what is going on. Israel had longed for the glory days of Solomon's kingdom. Longed for its expanse and its power and the fact that, that other kings and royals would come and marvel at its greatness and standing and its wealth and the wisdom of its king. And they, they looked for that. They, they longed for it. And the Lord is unfolding before their very eyes the power of His kingdom. They saw it. The question is, do you see it? Do you see it? I believe there are many that face our day with a a form of pessimism. Someone mentioned this morning about using language like post-Christian world or post-Christian society. And rightly said, they don't really like that term. I'm in full agreement. I said to them, yeah, it's like, it's like Christ has been dethroned. Post-Christian, it's like, oh, the world is not Christ off his throne. And here we are in the aftermath of a, of a king who's been dethroned by secularism or Islam or whatever other communism or whatever you want to say. Oh no, what are we going to do? Is that, is, that, is that the king you trust in? Is that the gospel you've committed your soul to? Oh, I know there, there, there is a declension today. For sure there is. There, there, are always, there are always the ebbing and flowing of the church. Jonathan Edwards, who was post-millennial, believed that that was the primary way that the church advanced. There were, there were ebbs. And then there are mighty flows in of, of the Spirit's work. A friend of mine recently shared a quote by the historian Ian Murray. And Ian Murray talking about Scotland and its history. He said, when Cha- Thomas Chalmers was born in 1780, it was about the deadest time in the history of the Church of Scotland since the Reformation. When he died in 1847, it was about the alivest. I don't know if that's a word, but he used it, and I'm not going to argue with him. 
The difference was almost entirely attributable to the Spirit's work through him. End quote. So you have 1780, a low ebb in the church, it's dark days. Scotland's wondering, what does the future hold? And the, the pessimists rise up out of the ranks and say, I told you so, the enemies are coming in. The Lord's about to return, look at it all, it's all happening here. The demise of the church and the land and so on and so forth. All the woes me and the doomsdayers all come out. And then you have Chalmers who enters into the ministry because he thinks it will collaborate well with his love for mathematics and physics and he can just work one day a week basically. He can do his sermon on a Saturday and he can preach on a Sunday and the other five days of the week he can give himself to his real love, mathematics. And then the Lord saves him. Saves him as a minister of the gospel. And then he begins to exercise his intellect and his power and his spiritual authority that God clothed him with an unction. And there was a new generation of young men that caught a vision. Men like McShane. Men like Horatius and Andrew Bonner. Men like William Burns. And they began to realize, no, no, there's bright hope. There's bright hope for the church. And a new generation arose and there was a mighty quickening and moving of the Spirit. And when they left the Church of Scotland, what was it, 1842, thereabouts, when they left the Church of Scotland, they had to start all over again. And before he died in 47, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, there were 400 churches. And there were various Christian schools with those A mighty spreading even in the last few years of his life. So maybe we're in 1780 Scotland. Maybe. That might be the case. Behold, 2021 America. Woe is her. The misery of her turning away from God and the rising of great enemies of the gospel and the church at a low ebb with its worldliness and carnality and its... its simplification of the gospel to the point you hardly notice it as being the gospel. They strip it away of all of its doctrine and truth and give you some form that they call the gospel that's, that's devoid of the heart and the substance of Christ crucified. And it all becomes about self. Add a little Jesus to improve your life. A little Jesus in my life and he'll improve my existence amidst the American dream and all that's going on. That's the church. Well, there we are. Well, let's, let's throw ourselves forward. Let's imagine that in 60 years or so, maybe it won't be this way. <laughs> maybe it won't be this way. Maybe we're the generation that's plowing the ground, remaining faithful, raising the children, raising the grandchildren, that will see a day of the outpouring of the Spirit that is beyond what we can ask or think. Why not? Why not? Give me a biblical reason why not. But things are waxing worse and worse, preacher. No, no, evil men are waxing worse and worse. That's what scripture says. Evil men wax worse and worse. But evil men wax worse and worse against the God man. So what are they? What are they amidst all their intent to destroy the church? 
Oh, I was encouraging, encouraging even in the past week. I don't know if you noticed. Kept up with the news. There were a number of pastors who took the state to court, basically, over the lockdowns in Scotland. Now, Scotland's a dark place. I mean, it is a dark place spiritually. Not recognizable to Knox's day or Chalmers's day or Bonner's day. It really is sad. But there's still faithful men there. There are faithful men there. And they took an approach. It's a legitimate approach. Others might have argued, even within their own denomination, why are we taking them to court? We're recognizing their authority. Let's just carry on. Let's open our churches. Let's do whatever God has called us to do. Well, they did take it to court. And they won. They won. And the remarks of the judge are almost unbelievable. Especially in light of the, the view that, that some are having today. Like, like reformed men who hold to the word of God saying, almost equating not being together is the same as, as, as being together. And here's a judge who's, who's hearing the, the language of the state that's saying, well, you know, you could, whatever you do in church, you can do at home. You pray at church, you can pray at home. You can get the sermons via webcast. All of this, they're saying, you know, what's the difference? And the judge looks at it all and he says, it is not the same. It is not the same. In the darkness of Scotland today, I trust it even is a, a moment of, of quickening in the church of Scotland, of reviving amidst all the darkness of, of the last century in that land. A little, a little indication that God hasn't completely left her. That faithful men have been used in a court case that will be, be a precedent for the entirety of the EU. See, we must have a prospect of hope, of expectation, that we will see the unfolding of the kingdom of God. And we will perceive for advance. We'll see that the kingdoms of this world are the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. And He will manifest it through the salvation of multitudes. And He will gather the men from the four corners of the globe. And one by one they'll be gathered in. What part have we got to play in that? Well, we can't determine that we live in days of the outpouring of the Spirit. We're not in control of the outpouring of the Spirit, but we ought to live in expectation. We are not polishing brass on sinking ships. We are part of the kingdom of Christ. And should our Lord tarry for yet another half millennia or more, we want to be on the side, on the pages of history, of the faithful few, the remnant that continued laboring, and by our prayers and our evangelistic zeal and our efforts to teach our children that God blessed them, and from our ranks, from our ranks, maybe just one, maybe one of our young men, one, just one of our sons here would rise up and be another Thomas Chalmers. Rise up and be a McShane and a Bonner and bring a mighty outpouring of the Spirit and a reviving in their towns and in their villages and in their communities. Why not, beloved? Why not? See the kingdom come as we pray, as our Lord taught us. Have you seen his kingdom? Have you? 
Do you see it? Do you see the glory of the cross? Do you? What do you see there as you gaze upon the broken body, the bleeding, wounded body of the Son of God? What do you see? Do you see someone failing? Do you see the Son of God perishing in a sad state in which you look at it and think, what a shame. Or do you see what the Spirit would have you to see? Do you see victory? Do you see life from death? Do you see except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit? Do you see the triumph of God's Son giving up the ghost to redeem sinners that they might never taste of the second death? Do you see it? Do you see the victory of the cross, young person, older person? Do you see the victory of it? That all you need is found in the blessings that flow from the crucified Lord Jesus. That we preach Christ and Him crucified. Yes, to the unbeliever, foolishness. Makes no sense. But to those that believe, it's the power of God. It is the fountainhead of extending His kingdom, of blessing multitudes, of crushing His enemies. Yes, for if He has victory over death, He has victory over all enemies. I trust that you have submitted to his kingdom, that you have bowed the knee, that you have surrendered your will, that you have confessed your sins, and you have made him Lord of your life. Are you living that way, Christian? Are you living as one who has submitted to the Lordship? He is both Lord and Christ. He is a prince and a savior. and He is the one that you don't just kind of buddy up to temporarily or whenever it seems appropriate for you, or whenever things get tough and you think, I'll throw up a little prayer to see if Jesus will help me out. This is one you give your life to. This is one you serve with all your being. This is one you proclaim to the ends of the world. May God help you. May God help us all. Let's bow together in prayer. read this morning of the time when the love of many will wax cold. Because iniquity abounds, the love of many waxes cold. You see those in the church get caught up into the same sins of the world. Therefore their love grows cold. Their affection dims. Their zeal peters out. And they're not living on fire for Christ. Has the world got in your heart? Is it exercising more influence in your life than it ought? Maybe tonight, afresh, you'll surrender your heart to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and give your life entirely, dedicate your life to Him and live for Him by His grace with all your might. Lord, bless Thy Word. We pray that what Thy saints of old saw we would see too. We are still living in the day of the 
the last time we are living in it presently. We have been for two millennia. And the Spirit is still working. He's still been given to the church. May we seek for Him. May we know Him. May He give us eyes to see not the impotence that we have, but the power we have in Christ. O God, empower Thy church. Give her fresh energy. Bestow upon her much of Thy blessed Spirit. May we, in the power of the Spirit alone, and not by our own wisdom, see that the preaching of the cross is sufficient to save to the uttermost. God, bring in the multitudes. May we see it. Oh, Lord, even this year. Make this year a year of harvest. Bring it, Lord. Let us not grow weary in well-doing. In due season we shall reap if we faint not. May our labors not be in vain. In the Lord, may all all of our evangelistic efforts, all of our ministries, bear fruit this year. Hear prayer. Be with those that go downstairs. Bless the food provided. Grant that the conversation will be edifying and useful in the building up of the faith. And all that is said before men and women leave here and go to their homes, bless and go with us. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Spirit, with all thy people now and evermore. Amen. Mm.